Hi, everyone. This is the Brandon Adams podcast, episode 15. I have with me Ben Eifert, the founder and CIO at QVR Advisors. So, hey, Brandon. Great to be here. Oh, great to have you. Great to have you. So reading your background, it seems like you might be the, the dean of quantitative finance. I'm so impressed by your, by your background. If you could maybe give us a, a couple minutes on your academic background and how you came to start QVR Advisors and what you guys do at QVR. Sure, there's probably a lot more people, a lot of people better qualified than I to be the Dean of uh, Quantitative Finance, but um, yeah, I'll give you a, a quick idea. So I uh, started my career in training a long time ago as a development economist. So I have a, a PhD from Berkeley. Um, my first real job was, uh, was as an economist at the World Bank, working for the chief economist uh, of the bank back in the early 2000s. I, uh, when I was working on the PhD, about halfway through, I started getting interested in finance, um, started teaching in the, the master's in financial engineering program at Berkeley, uh, things like empirical methods for, you know, in statistics. Ended up uh, working for a hedge fund most of the last couple years of grad school, um, and then my first real uh, full-time job in the in the business was on the Wells Fargo prop desk during the during and during the credit crisis and the aftermath of the credit crisis, so 2009, 2010. The Wells Fargo prop desk was a lot of fun because while we were probably the 70, 75th best regarded and smartest uh, uh, prop desk on Wall Street, we were also at a bank that you know, was not having issues in 2008 and had a very strong balance sheet, which was very unusual at the, at the time. Most banks and most prop desks were just having their positions liquidated and getting closed down. So we were able to, you know, trade and manage from a position of strength. So I, I was a quant there. I ran a quant team and then started uh, managing uh, trades in more macro-oriented uh, derivatives instruments. Um, worked with a a colleague who came there from Blue Mountain named John Laughlin uh, worked for John once he came to build a, a derivatives portfolio and business there. And then John and I left uh, a few years later to go start a firm called Mariner Coria, or yeah, a fund called Mariner Coria on the Mariner Investment Group platform. Now I run a firm called QBR Advisors that uh, is out here in San Francisco and you know, manages uh, large uh, institutional portfolios in uh, options and volatility. Beautiful. And I, I know in the podcast format, we're not supposed to chat about past returns, but uh, you had a great month in March. Bloomberg wrote about it. Anyone who's interested can, can look uh, at the Bloomberg article. Now, at QBR, do you, do you all manage one fund, a series of funds? And aside from the, the funds, do you offer advisory services uh, in the absence of money management? Yeah, so I can't talk too much about that kind of stuff, but we don't, we don't, we manage large, uh, large mandates for institutional investors that are all uh, separate mandates. So we don't have any commingled fund products that are, you know, are investable for, for individuals. Got it. Now, one quick question on your background. You, you note offhandedly that you're teaching courses like, uh, financial econometrics, say at the, at the graduate level at Berkeley, which is a very well-regarded financial engineering program. Um, and you said that your specialty was in development economics. It, 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 would, seem, it would seem like the, uh, the level of, of proficiency to teach at that level, it must, it must be uh, quite demanding. So how did, you, how did you have that academic background? Uh, well, you know, development economics was a long time ago at this point, but um, no, I, so I haven't taught for four or five years probably in the, uh, in the Berkeley program, just been too busy. But I mean, I think I taught some of those classes, I guess, starting in 2007, eight, uh, you know, as a, as an instructor. And I think the last one I taught would have been maybe 2015 or 2016. Um, but, you know, I think generally speaking, um, you know, the, the skill set as a, you know, 
as an academic empirical, you know, economist and financial economist is, is one that translates fairly well to, you know, teaching teaching graduate students how to you know, use data to answer answer questions they have about financial markets. Got it. Um, now, if we take a, a macro lens and we look at the last, say, ten years in the volatility landscape, um, I'm wondering. Uh, on Twitter, I get the impression that you you were long volatility through much of this turbulence, which was a good place to be. The the other side, people who were short volatility, bef last year you were writing a lot about how there was a long-term appetite to be short volatility. How did it come about that a lot of players in the market became essentially addicted to uh, to being short volatility? Sure. No, good question. So we'll do the, you know, mini history, at least over the last, call it 15, you know, 10, 15 years of, of volatility cycles. Uh, and I'll try to be a little more specific about, you know, short volatility, which I think is a, you know, a, a very broad bucket and, and has a lot of different types of things lumped into it. So, you know, in the, in the run up to the credit crisis, you know, 2005, six, seven, you did see you know, as the economic cycle matured, as realized volatility fell, and as you know, assets rose, you did see you know the emergence of and popularity of a lot of short volatility and tail and uh, you know tail risk selling type of strategies, particularly coming out of the, the hedge fund community. Um, what you and risk premium falling and falling and falling uh, in two thousand and eight. Of course, there was a massive crisis. Much of you know, much of that, those trades blew up, and strategies unwound, and many of those hedge funds suffered big losses. And after after two thousand and eight, what you really saw was you know first a huge short covering of short volatility positions, but then a, a huge rush into long volatility positions. So it became um, you know almost consensus for even large real money asset owners that one was supposed to have a, a strategic tail risk hedging program where you had a hedge budget and you know two percent or you know whatever your favorite number was uh, of assets were going to be targeted uh, you know to be spent on insurance type of policies uh, in 2009 10 11 12 and, and what you saw as a result was just a you know incredible overpricing actually of of most volatility type of positions, you know, to the point where the actual cost and actual bleed rate on that type of insurance was much higher than you know, people thought it was going to be, right? And you saw, um, so, so instead of being hedged sort of at the right time coming into the crisis, people, you know, lost a lot of money in the crisis and then retroactively started hedging after the crisis at extremely expensive levels, right? Which generally doesn't make sense. When if, if insurance is really expensive, you're often better off just having less risk in your portfolio uh, and, and not trying to pay crazy prices to hedge what risk you do have, right? Um, and so that was really this overhang of remembering how bad it was to be, you know, during the credit crisis to, to take such big losses was what drove it. volatility pricing for let's call it the next four or five years. But at the hedge fatigue really started to set in by call it 2013 2014 um you know hedge funds had a, you know re-emerged selling uh, selling index volatility especially and engaging in dispersion trades and things throughout that time and, and were making decent money doing it and by about 2014 you saw most of the large you know pension fund systematic tail hedging portfolios and strategies one by one getting shut down you know having bled huge amounts of money much more than uh, than those pension funds maybe thought they were going to over that period of time. And what you saw also, you know, s s not really directly in replacement, but just a parallel process that had been happening. Um, many of the pension fund consultants had been writing white papers on things like call overwriting, which uh, looking at data going back, you know, 20 or 30 years at that point, suggesting that the risk-adjusted returns of various types of option-selling strategies were actually quite good and, there were, and, and pitching them in a defensive light. So call overwriting being something that would reduce the beta of an equity portfolio and add some diversifying characteristics, for example. And you saw those same large pension funds that had been heavily engaged in tail hedging starting to slowly rotate into you know, shutting down those programs and adding option-selling strategies. Now, the, those option selling strategies usually were, were it wasn't 
as simple as buying the same things that they had been selling before. Typically, the tail, you know, large strategic tail risk programs might have been, for example, buying long-term deep out-of-the-money put options, whereas the, the emergence of large-scale first call overwriting and then cash-secured put-selling strategies out of real money uh, were much more focused on short-term options. Uh, where if you looked at the, you know, the back test for 20 or 30 years, it's it starting in about 2012 or 2013, you would have, you would have said that, oh, the best, if you're going to sell options, the best thing to do is to just repeatedly sell relatively short term, relatively near the money options. And so these programs started gaining, you know, a lot of size and popularity steadily after 2014, you saw first great growth in, in call overwriting. And then a bit later, around 2016, call it significant growth in cash secured put selling by large real money institutions. Uh, at the same time, around 2016, 2017, you started getting a huge popularity of retail option selling strategies, uh, both in iron condor space and also things like the VIX ETNs. And really, that that steamroller just kept kept growing through, um, you know, through 2018 and, and 2019. And so, what you had, you know, again over that that. Uh, you know, the cycle past 2008 was, you know, first this reemergence of, of tail risk buying, then that going away and then really rotating across the investment spectrum into, uh, into short volatility type of strategies. So you mentioned that there was a hedging fatigue. Uh, I read an interesting article uh, recently about CalPERS and it sounds like they might have given in to hedging fatigue in January 2020. I did see that article, yeah. And you know, I don't I don't know much or I'm not capable really of commenting on CalPERS specifically, but I think this is this type of thing is pretty common, right? Because generally speaking, you know, when when you think about, you know, your your fire insurance on your house, you know, you don't have a a, a family meeting every quarter and and say, oh my God, we lost you know five hundred dollars you know on our fire insurance. That really isn't paying off, and then you shut it down. But but unfortunately, from an investment perspective, uh, often that's the process that's used to evaluate you know things like hedging portfolios, right? Um, and typically, the temptation to you know to think that way is the highest at exactly the wrong time <laughs> right when when markets are rallying and rallying and rallying and the price of insurance is very low and you uh, institutions look at their their hedging portfolios and say why the heck are we even doing that you know the last four years we've bled four percent on that um and you know in this case clearly um and i believe the you know universal was the investment that was being mentioned you know in that case you know in universal's um I think the you know the public data that we've seen is that you know relative to at least the premium amount that that institutions were putting in on, a, on and replenishing on a regular basis in Universa, that was like a four thousand plus percent return, right? So, yeah, timing is timing is tough on these things. It's very tough to time when there's going to be a crisis, but it's not tough to time how much you're getting charged, sort of how big those premiums are in the market. And you know, early this year, those premiums were extremely low, right? So institutionally, you find that there's there's a hunger to basically hedge after something terrible has happened. So in 2009, 2010, 2011, people were wanting to hedge after something terrible had happened and when it was very expensive to hedge going forward. Yeah, it's unfortunately, it's a, it's a behavioral reality and tendency, I think, that we all have, right? You kind of anchor on the recent past and you extrapolate the recent past, you know, out to what, what might happen next, right? Um, when, when typically, and it's always hard in the, in the middle of a crisis, things can always get worse, right? But, um, but what you do know, of course, is what you really do know is, oh, well, okay, the price of insurance is now 15 times higher than it was three months ago. So whatever else you think you know about the world that you're living in and what might happen in another three months, you do not know that the price is 15 times higher. And that's the right thing to, to really think about. Um, but yeah, I think this time around, I would say there, there was at least somewhat less of that uh, of that behavioral tendency in the sense that there were large, sophisticated organizations that uh, we're asking a lot of questions about hedging and starting to put on new hedging programs um, after tw 2018. So I think 2018 was a wake-up call to, uh, you know, a wide range of institutions, uh, both 
you know, even though the February events in 2018 and also the December events in 2018 were more of technical positioning driven, you know, equity market unwinds than they were real big crises. They reminded people that markets go down and volatility spikes and it can be, you know, versus 2017, which was just an extremely quiet period, right? So we manage, you know, large, uh, explicit tail risk hedging programs for big institutions that, you know, fall into that category that um, were people who wanted to be more proactive um, versus in 2007, I think having you know, just nobody wanted to talk about tail risk hedging anywhere. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's certainly, I think, um, relative to the full scope of all the folk who, um, you know, who probably should have been putting hedges on, uh, still it was very small and still the, there is a great uptick in interest after, after these volatility events, which isn't necessarily what you would hope for. Now, with regard to tail risk hedging, you have what I would consider a naive uh, tail risk hedging strategy where you might, for instance, just roll over uh, at the money or out of the money puts maybe every month or even every week. And then you might have more sophisticated strategies. We can save the sophisticated strategies for later, but with regard to a, a naive strategy of say, just rolling over one month out at the money S&P uh, puts to maybe protect against a long portfolio, is there data out there that shows what the expected return for such a strategy is over a long period of time? Now, I. I know there's zero sum markets by construction, so one might think that they're that they're somewhat uh, close to zero. But then again, you have a lot of people punting these markets, taking speculative put positions, and, or using it as insurance against their portfolio. And you don't have so many people writing the put option, so maybe we might expect the expected returns to be negative. I'm I'm curious if there's much data out there how you do if you're just rolling S&P options either at the money or out of the money over a long period of time? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a great, great deal of data on that kind of thing. And it's very, a very easy question to look at. Right. And actually what you described, you know, you could just look at uh, sort of the, the inverse of the put index PUT at, at SIBO, for example, right. Which is, is the, is effectively the opposite of what you just said, sort of selling the one month put, you know, every month. Um, keep in mind, so, you know, efficient markets does not say there should be a zero return for, um, you know, for, for put options, right? Because there's a positive, generally speaking, equity markets go up over time, right? That they, they're supposed to, and they should, because that reflects the risk premium of, you know, giving people your capital, uh, you know, and taking risk, uh, you should be paid to invest over time. And a put option is a hedge of that exposure. And so a put option should always have a negative expected return if the market is behaving in, in at all an efficient way, right? Because it's a because it's inversely correlated with that with that equity market that has a risk premium. Um, now the you can look over long periods of time and see that um, let's call it, you know, up until around 2012, 2013, 2014 there was you know, generally a relatively high risk premium associated with short-term options where um, the implied volatility that one, uh, that one bought might have on average been safe two and a half or three points higher than the realized volatility uh, that, was, that the market realized on the, on the back of that reflecting you know, a risk premium and a steady bleed in just a constant rolling uh, put portfolio. What you saw after 2013, 2014 was steady erosion of that premium to the point where by you know, late 2019, early 2020, it looked like that premium had been you know, very close to zero. Um, so that on a, you know, on, a, on a realized basis. And that was before this big sell-off associated with, with COVID and of course, very sharply negative risk premium. And so you know, generally hedging is hedging should and typically is costly. Otherwise, it wouldn't, you know, the world wouldn't make any sense. Um, but there is, of course, wide variation in, you know, the types of hedges that one can put on and also in the, you know, the risk premium at a point in time associated with hedges. One thing I would note is, um, you know, there's a, um, <coughs> the, there's a big, you know, tail risk hedging. One, one thing, the first thing that we talk about with 
large institutional investors that are interested in tail risk hedging is first just having a clear idea of what you're talking about and what your objectives are in the first place. Um, <clears throat> generally speaking, you know, what you described of, you know, buying a short term near the money option, generally, I wouldn't characterize that as, ta as, as tail risk hedging. That's going to be a long volatility type of position. Um, but it's going to be one that will, you know, make some money quickly as the market starts to sell off and volatility starts to rise. Um, but will, but is not particularly leveraged into the tails in the sense that most of the convexity of that position is very short term and, you know, relative to the starting point of markets. And it does not have much convexity at all, you know, in, in the deep left tail, for example. Um, versus a position, for example, in, you know, very far out of the money options or uh, a explicit convexity position that's like short a small number of near the money options and long a lot of out of the money options or a variant swap, for example. So tail, you know, to, to us, I think if you are a large institution and a large asset owner, generally speaking, you're going to be long risk. Um, that's what you have to do. If you're a $100 billion pension, you're going to own some stocks, you're going to own some credit, you're going to own some bonds. Um, you're going to own some private equity, right? You're, 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 you have to deploy capital to take risk. Your objective in tail risk hedging typically is not to just cut the amount of, of risk you have locally. Uh, if you want to do that, you should just have some less stocks, right? Um, your objective is to cut off that deep left tail of really bad outcomes where your portfolio is down 20 or 30 or 40 or 50% and you're having to, you know, you're unable to pay benefits, having to raise cash, you're having to make very bad portfolio decisions in order to, to meet your financial obligations, right? I think that's really, uh, I think, the right conversation to have about thinking about tail risk hedging. How do you protect against the very bad outcome in a relatively inexpensive way? Got it. And over time, when you're, when you're tail risk hedging, um, a lot of the problem is the, the time decay, the passage of, of time is, is costly. And one of the benefits of sophisticated tail risk hedging is that you can look at all of the different volatility markets and, and sell some volatility where it's rich and buy some volatility uh, where it's cheap. Is, is that the kind of thing you're looking to do? Yeah, I think you have to be a little, it, yes, in general, you have to be a little careful. Uh, what you don't want to do in a, in a tail risk portfolio is take meaningful basis risk between longs and shorts, right? So you don't want to say, well, this is a tail risk portfolio, but I think equity vol is expensive and, you know, currency vol is cheap and I'm going to, you know, sell some equity vol and buy some currency vol, right? Because there's tons of states of the world where, you know, equity ball goes up a lot and currency ball doesn't go up a lot and you just lose money. And that's not like what a tail risk portfolio is supposed to do, right? You're not, you don't want to take a bunch of basis risk, but you do generally want to think about what is the world charging? What is the market charging for different types of risk and what kind of cost of carry range um, is a client able to sustain uh, for a particular type you know, shape of a convexity profile in terms of, you know, how well is the portfolio likely to perform for different magnitudes of equity market drawdowns over, over different periods of time, right? And, you know, so, you know, one might be willing to sell, let's say, you know, shorter dated near the money options in, in small size to fund larger positions in longer term, deep out of the money put options. Um, <clears throat> on the same underlying, therefore not taking a bunch of basis risk between different markets, for, for example. Um, if, you know, long-term volatility is low, uh, you know, the convexity profile of that type of a, of a position may, might make a lot of sense. That's in some sense a, a uh, gives you exposure to volatility of volatility and to, you know, term structure and various other things. So yeah, the, there's very much, you know, I think a, a part of a process of understanding um, the relative value of different parts of the term structure and different parts of the option market and where, where is tail risk uh, the most underpriced? Where is there a lot of convexity that can be, can be owned relatively cheaply? And is there anything, you know, that can be sold in small size to fund that without creating material basis risk to different you know, scenarios of the world that could actually cause the portfolio to, you know, do very badly. So on this subject of basis risk, uh, I noticed 
that in March at the height of the turbulence, there were some funds blowing up that were supposed to blow up, uh, ones that had on exactly the wrong trades of being short volatility. Um, there were other funds that blew up that weren't supposed to blow up, that maybe uh, would have been expected to, to do well in, in this environment, but then they blew up. So there maybe they, they would have had this basis risk where they chose some risk that they either knew they had or didn't know they have, and it somehow managed to blow them up. Yeah, I think, um, you know, without, without obviously commenting on any particular firms or anything, I think, that, you know, there are a lot of, <clears throat> there are types of trades out there in the marketplace that, you know, are relative value trades in the sense that there's a long position and a short position, but where the behavior of those, of the long and the short in different extreme circumstances is, is pretty unpredictable, right? And there's a lot of convexity associated with the long and the short. So, I mean, one example is just, you know, it's, it's been very popular historically among relative value funds and managers to have, let's say, long position in a variance swap on, you know, your favorite long, maybe the Kospi in Korea, or maybe uh, some, a basket of single name of companies that you, you know, think are, are good long volatility positions, and then short a variance swap on the S&P 500. Right. And that's, a, you know, that's a relative value trade. There's a long and a short and you might be vague and neutral or, or have some other type of hedge ratio. But variance swaps are extraordinarily convex, right? A variance swap, the payoff of a variance swap is proportional to the square of volatility, right? And so when volatility rises a lot, the square of volatility rises like really, really a lot, right? And, you know, you don't know if you buy a variance swap on Microsoft, you know, and you sell a variance swap on the S&P, you probably have a view on, you know, the relative volatility of Microsoft and the S&P, like in the current environment, right? You don't really have much of an idea of what does the world look like if volatility is 10 or 15 times higher and like what's happening to Microsoft, right? I mean, and the, so the basis risk between that long leg and that short leg, and then the magnitude of the PL swings that can be associated with that, because both of those positions have, you know, a squared term in the, in the value of the position that you have is, is very huge, right? So, and I just made up that position, of course, but the point being, that's a position that has a huge amount of basis risk in the tails. Um, and I think there were many types of things like that out there that, you know, maybe seemed like not a big deal to people at the time, but when you get such a crazy environment like this, um, were, you know, a very large source of, of extreme risk. And the environment got so crazy that people were talking about the possibility of market closures. Were, were you sweating that? Were other market participants sweating that? Uh, I think every option market participant had to take that possibility seriously from an operational and, you know, valuation perspective, because you had to understand, well, if, if a market shutdown happened for any range of different durations of time, how did that affect the positions that you had on and how would they be settled if they expired in the interim and so forth? I think, you know, our view probably was that a market shutdown wouldn't have made much sense in terms of it would have probably created many more problems in markets than it, you know, than it solved. Um, you know, because market shutdowns, especially in option markets, create many, many almost arbitrary transfers of value from one participant to another based on how a contract gets settled and things like that. Um, but even if we thought it didn't make much sense, you know, this, the, the, there's many things in the world that don't make sense and you have to prepare for all eventualities and understand their, their implications to make sure that you're not exposed to risk uh, along those lines. Now, with regard to uh, tail risk hedging, uh, one, one naive hedge would be to just roll S&P puts, as we talked about. Another possibility would be to buy out of the money VIX calls. And there, I'm sure you've seen, it's quite entertaining that there's the character 50 cent that buys large out of the money VIX calls that are priced at 50 cents. And he, I guess, had a large payday in March. Um, maybe you could compare these two strategies of rolling S&P puts versus, versus buying uh, VIX calls. Do they have roughly the same uh, expected returns for a, for a hedger? 
Sure. So, you know, historically, and lots of people have made that comparison historically and, you know, looked at its, its different characteristics. So they are, you know, related, but very different bets, right? Because if you buy a, a deep out of the money S&P put, typically an asset owner, um, typically their portfolio that they're thinking about is a risk asset portfolio and equity portfolio, right? So the, the advantage of the S&P put is that it's directly you know, its payoff is directly linked to the types of assets that you own. So if, if your assets are going down a lot, your hedge is very likely working about how you expected. Um, whereas the VIX call is, is really more of a bet on a very sudden rise in volatility, right? Markets can in principle go, you know, you could imagine a scenario where the S&P is down, you know, 20% over the course of a year, but volatility isn't really so crazy, right? The market just sort of drifts down on, on momentum. Um, this, this was a, this event, uh, <clears throat> was a particularly fast and particularly sharp market drawdown where volatility rose a lot. And interestingly, a lot of market participants were trying very hard to short volatility using VIX products along the way. So I think that, you know, the payoff that, that, uh, that Ruffer had, and it's public, who, you know, there's some articles going around, right? They're a large asset manager in the UK. Um, you know, keep in mind, this is very much a hedge. So they're a big long only type of shop, right? They had lots of, of equity exposure, but the profile of the hedge was that initially the VIX calls were underperforming <coughs> relative to say an S&P put position, because if you recall at the end, month end February, the VIX was almost 40 but the front month VIX future was only 26, I think, because for, for a variety of reasons. But you know, these type of events, the early stages of a big drawdown in the current environment, given how popular shorting volatility is, bring out lots of people who are trying to sell that VIX future or to short the VXX, the TVIX, for example. But then what you saw was this extremely steeply inverted ball term structure that persisted through this, you know, through this continued equity market sell-off. So those, those call positions at the front of the curve had extremely positive carry rolling up this term structure. And then you started to see eventually at the peak, just massive liquidations of the short portfolios of, of institutions that were trying to short volatility using VIX products. And you saw them blowing up. And so those, those calls and the, the VIX futures in, uh, in March you know, just exploding kind of through the roof. So the, the, those positions ended up doing extremely well, but they sort of underperformed on the first leg down and then they massively outperformed kind of in the finale. So this is a naive question, but uh, 50 cents, rough, rougher capital, as you point out, they, they got the nickname because they would do these large transactions in derivatives priced at 50 cents. Um, is it like a statement of market efficiency? Sort of, it doesn't matter what you buy, it's all priced about the same. If you're tail hedging, you can just go out there and pick any instrument. Is it, is it, is, is it sort of a statement of market efficiency that they were willing to express their view by often getting these contracts that were priced at 50 cents? Because obviously you're, you're constraining yourself quite a bit if you're uh, liking to buy things that are priced at exactly 50 cents. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you just want to think of that as a, a simple portfolio construction choice, right? And I don't think there was anything magic about it, nor do I think they would tell you there was anything magic about it. Um, you know, they're, they're solving the problem. Well, you know, how do you, how do you come up with a simple, sensible, robust portfolio construction for this hedge? If you pick a, a relatively constant premium amount, um, that means you can do the same size roughly of contracts every month and you're going to spend about the same amount of premium. Um, and, you know, typically when markets are quiet, it's going to be something like, a, you know, 20 or 22 or 25 strike VIX call or something like that. Um, and, you, you know, when markets are really exciting, you may or may not be adding to that position. So it's really just a simplifying choice that they're, uh, you know, that they were making that was perfectly reasonable. So you're sort of taking the position that I'm, I'm a price taker, other people are, are setting these prices, and I'm going to focus right here. Yeah, and, and they obviously affect prices to some extent because they're, they're so large. But um, 
but yeah, I think that you know the dis the decision to spend a relatively constant amount of premium every month is a very is a very reasonable one, right? Because if you have some other kind of very nuanced portfolio construction view or rule that sometimes ends up requiring you to spend five times as much premium as you usually do just because of what your rule is, like that may or may not be really what you're going for, right? Um, probably in, in their case, you want more of like a constant insurance budget, basically, which is effectively what they're doing. So you mentioned that uh, one, one proxy for how much you're paying to insure your portfolio one, one proxy for how much negative expected return you're taking on by say rolling S&P puts is implied vol versus realized vol. And in general, as a, as a hedger, if, if implied vol is say three points more than realized vol, you're paying a lot for the, for the insurance. Um, but it's interesting that over the long bull market, maybe implied vol would be 3% uh, or so higher than realized vol. But then in March, realized vol exceeds implied vol by a staggering amount. I don't know. I don't even know how, how you might quantify, but a very large figure. Um, so then it seems if you're looking at the, at say the last 10 years, how do you, how do you put it all together? When you have a lot of months where Implied vol is just a little bit higher than realized vol, but then then one month where realized vol is so much higher than implied vol. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. And actually, I think that the really interesting and important thing um, isn't even just that, you know, there was sort of a, a constant-ish risk premium and then there was a big event. Those things are hard to handicap because to your point, you know, the, the event that happens once every 10 years and you don't know whether it's going to be, you know, a 100 vol difference or a 50 vol difference. That's hard to handicap, right? I think the really important thing was that, um, you know, looking at any kind of trailing, you know, two or three year average of real of, of implied volatility minus subsequent realized volatility, or looking at any kind of empirical forecast driven by realized volatility forecasts, it actually looked like that premium was zero before this event happened, right? So you know, you were not getting paid anything materially to sell short-term options from an implied volatility versus realized volatility perspective, even as of, you know, the end, you know, December 2019, January 2020, right? So like, that's the thing that if you're looking at that data and you're understanding the flows behind it and the very heavy selling of short-term options, you know, that should be giving you pause about engaging in that type of thing. It's not that you, it's easy to forecast that there's going to be a, a historic volatility spike that, you know, happens faster than 2008. It's, you know, how much would you lose if that were to happen? And how much are you being paid actually to, in risk premium to take that risk? And, you know, the, the answer to the latter question was, you know, by any reasonable analysis, I think very, very little. Right. Um, and, you know, you could see that in, if you were to look at um, just the, look at the, the a typical shape of the what's called the volatility term structure in the S and P five hundred, you know, in over the last couple of years in a relatively low volatility environment, and compare that to a relatively low volatility environment, let's say pre two thousand and eight, what you what you used to see, you know, look back at say two thousand six. Um, when markets were quiet, you might have seen something like, you know, VIX 14, um, one month near the money implied volatility of 12, and long term, say, two year implied volatility of 14 or 15. After, you know, over the last few years, when you look at relatively quiet market environments, you know, call it summer of 2018 or summer of 2019. Uh, you know, or uh, or summer of 2019 before the QE sell-offs again, uh, or sorry, the Q3 sell-offs, what you would see is short-dated implied volatility, you know, eight or nine, and long-term implied volatility, 14 or 15. So just a, a large reduction in the level of short-term implied volatility, you know, with the long-dated implied volatility similar. So just a steepening of this, of this term structure 
um, you know, where, where the term structure, again, is kind of the relationship between the time to maturity of an option and the implied volatility of that option. And so, you know, people were coming out and, and selling in large size, you know, S&P one month implied volatility at eight, which if you're doing call overwriting, you know, corresponds to just getting some very tiny amount of premium for the call that you're selling, you know, or for the put that you're selling if you're doing cash secured put writing. Right. And that translate, you know, translated directly, you know, in the data into a very low level of delivered, uh, you know, premium of implied volatility over subsequent realized volatility. So I know it's a, it's a busy weekend morning for you. I, I have two more quick questions for you and then, and then uh, can be on your way. But I'm, I, I've been following your Twitter so closely for so long that I have, I have many questions that that bubble in my mind. Um, I want to talk about this concept of volatility going forward. So mm -hmm. for, for, for listeners, and again, this is my naive understanding coming, coming in play. The, when we're talking about volatility, a implied vol of 12%, 12 would imply a uh, 1% standard deviation of daily returns and 24 would imply 2% standard deviation of, of daily returns. 36. Is this what we yes. like, like just it's, no, that's, that's more about six, like 16 and 32. So a 16, 16 and 32. Okay. 16, 16% at the money ball would roughly correspond to a, a 1% daily move. Got it. And Going through your Twitter feed recently, I've come away with the impression that you expect realized volatility to remain very high just because of the uncertainty of the, the economic outlook. Yeah, I think that, you know, I don't, I think we've experienced, we've probably seen the highs in, uh, you know, in very short term realized volatility back in mid-March, um, which were highs, you know, that exceeded even any point in the credit crisis by a you know, fairly significant margin. But the, you know, looking at the current environment, right, we have a, a large and very deep fundamental economic shock here, right, which wasn't necessarily one that, that you know, we saw coming or anyone particularly saw coming, but, you know, you're, we're, We've taken you know huge segments of the U.S. economy and the global economy just totally offline for you know a period of months. We don't have any idea really yet how long this is all going to persist. You know the process of coming. We've seen some some countries that came out of quarantine early going back into quarantine because COVID uh, growth picks up again. Um, the the cash flow implications to you know many you know medium sized businesses and businesses linked to travel and retail and so forth are, are huge right and the and you know those impacts are going to keep flowing through the economy um, obviously central banks are being extremely proactive but I think it's a very naive view to think that um, mm -hmm. that realized volatility is going to you know fall back to really low levels in a in a hurry here. Um, also the, you know, the general liquidity environment is somewhat better since mid-March, um, but it's still very fragile in the sense that, you know, large trades still move markets, uh, quite a lot the, you know, the bid offer, the depth of, uh, e-mini markets and of option markets is, uh, is much less than during normal quiet environments. So, yeah, I think that, you know, you, you should very much expect, you know, persistence of an elevated level of, of realized volatility for, for some period of time. Um, the, you know, volatility term structures very much um, imply a, a fairly rapid rate of at least partial normalization. And um, we can argue, you know, whether they imply, you know, too, I think they probably imply too much, uh, too rapid of a pace of normalization, but, you know, I certainly could be wrong about that. Um, but yeah, I think that the, there's a, there's a, popular notion for folks who have been, you know, in volatility markets the last seven or eight years that, you know, any spike in volatility is very short lived, um, which I think just reflects, um, you know, not having a meaningfully having had a meaningful economic downturn for a long time. I think that's just totally wrong. So what you're saying is that you have, you have a volatility event like September 11th, or like the earthquake in Japan, where it's an event, it changes a lot of things, but then you have normalcy and then you have 
another type of event that's sort of a long lasting, slow to unfold thing like the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and you're saying that the market can't quite decide what this is and you think it's leaning a little bit too strongly towards uh, say a September 11th type event? I, I think that's exactly the right description, yeah. So last, last question I have for you, and this is sort of a conceptual question. Um, I, I was following uh, Chris Cole on Twitter and looking at some of his, his old posts, his long posts. And I came, I came across a paper that looks at option pricing in inflationary environments or environments that are expected to be inflationary in the future. And I found this to be interesting in light of all the monetary policy that is being conducted now. Some market participants might expect higher rates of inflation in the future. Uh, to summarize what Cole says, and I'm sure you're familiar with the paper, he, he says that basically if you have hyperinflation or high rates of inflation in nominal prices, it sort of cuts off the bad outcomes, the bad tails of the distribution, because the, the grading, if you will, is being inflated. The nominal prices are, are rising and it creates the opportunity for uh, hard to imagine tail outcomes on the positive side where nominal prices are inflating a lot, especially over long periods of time. Um, do you, do you have any, any view or may, maybe you're playing in shorter term markets where this, this isn't relevant, but do you have any view of how the option markets might accommodate what is potentially a new inflationary regime? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Obviously, Chris is a super smart guy. Um, I think that certainly a significant rise in and uncertainty over the path of of inflation you know over the long term um, should be associated with you know heightened equity market uncertainty at least in the earlier phases right because there would be great disagreement about what it means for overall asset prices also for the relative asset prices in you know different parts of the economy for you know utilities versus you know uh, industrials versus you know etc uh, i think that it's unclear to me that that type of environment, you know, cuts off bad tails in, you know, in a, or, or all types of bad tails. It probably reorganizes the types of, of tails that you have, right? So generally speaking, a higher rate of inflation is going to reduce risks associated with over leverage because it inflates away, uh, it inflates away debt, right? And the, the impact of debt, it's going to cause, you know, sectors that have a lot of sectors and exposures that have a lot of um, you know real income from real assets and have a lot of income generating assets that aren't inflation sensitive to perform well and and a lot you know and but it's going to cause a lot of underperformance in sectors that um, you know generate cash returns. It's very unclear how things work you know in the banking system and the types of exposures that people have. So I think that probably in the if you were to see you know, a large rise in um, in actual or perceived inflation risk. You would have a lot of volatility associated with that in the short term as the market figured out the implication you know, or argued about the implications of that. Um, longer term, it probably would settle down. I mean, I think if you, you know, and it of course depends on, on the extent to which, you know, the, the magnitude to which you're talking, but like one, um, you know, one period to think about, right, is the post-World War II period in the United States where, of course, World War II, you know, was a, a generational, um, you know, massive generational risk that we were able to overcome as a country. We incurred a, an absolutely massive amount of debt on the back of, of doing that, right? U.S. debt, uh, debt to GDP ratios were off the charts. Um, you know, we, that, we did inherit, I think, a, a very, a, a world that from the U.S. perspective, you know, was very beneficial after that, right? Where we were the dominant economic power globally, and that's a hard situation to emulate. But um, you know, you you did see for the next twenty years somewhat elevated rates of inflation that eroded away that debt and a relatively high rate of nominal growth. You know, and the U.S. Uh, you know, really doing quite well on the on the back of all of that with 
um, you know, moderate levels of, of volatility. So I think that the, there would likely be a very heightened near-term impact on volatility. Um, you know, the medium and longer term is less clear and, and certainly depends on whether we're talking about, you know, 4% inflation or, you know, 10% inflation. You think, you think that people will get a handle on it uh, and once expectations adjust, the, the option markets will, will be able to, to price it. I, I guess a lot, of, a lot of the uncertainty now comes from the fact that the Fed did not withdraw liquidity or they, they started to withdraw liquidity that they had brought about during the financial crisis. And that caused market turbulence, so they they re-injected liquidity. And now there's the question of having, after injecting a lot of liquidity for this crisis, are they ever going to withdraw it? Um, yeah, and it's you know it's it's certainly unclear the path of you know resolution of, of of a lot of this. I mean, I think yeah, to your point, does the market get a handle on it or not? It just depends on the path. If we're you know if we have a a steady rise in rates of inflation that settle down at four or five percent, the market will eventually get a, a handle around that, and expectations will realign. If we have some, if we were to have some kind of, you know, wildly unanchored move in, in inflation that continued to, you know, to to accelerate, the markets would have a much harder time getting their hands around it. You know, for for what it's worth, I think that, um, you know, obviously there's plenty of disagreement about these kind of things. Uh, I think that you know, that, that scenario is extraordinarily unlikely in, in my view. Um, the, I think there's very little, um, clear understanding of the link between inflation and, um, and monetary policy in, you know, a large globally dominant country with its own currency and so forth. You know, you can, you can always look at Japan for, the exception to every rule that people think that they understand about uh, about interest rates and inflation uh, and and the macro economy, um, but yeah, I think that um, I think that certainly there would be uh, any any material rise in inflation in the in the near term would would be likely a source of volatility rather than a dampening effect. For sure. Well, Ben, I I really really appreciate the time. Um, if you could just quickly let listeners know where they can where they can engage with you where they can find you on a on a regular basis yeah absolutely you know you can um I, fair warning you know um you're very kind about my twitter feed mostly i just you know complain about about um you know whatever ter uh, whatever savagery that my little kids have been involved in but you can find me on twitter at, at ben p Eifert. Um, and, uh, you know, you can, you can look up QVR advisors on the, on the internet, if you'd so choose, it's going to be one of those bland websites with a, you know, a contact form and, and pretty much nothing else, but, um, but I'm glad, to, uh, glad to engage. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Cheers. Thanks a lot.